Hello and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah. So do we have any updates? I don't think we do. I got nada. <laughs> nada, nada. Okay, let's move on in. What do you got for me this week, Kylie? All right. So this is for the week of December 6th through the 12th. And it is time to begin the festive season. Oh, oh, oh. Yes. And what better way to celebrate than with some symphonic music? Yeah. Woohoo. So this week I'm covering a listener requested topic. So a big shout out to Hannah who requested that we cover Hector Berlioz and his Symphonie Fantastique. Ooh, nice. And now you get to hear me listen, uh, try and say some French words throughout this thing. So that should be fun. Oh, my favorite. <laughs> what a holiday treat. You're so mean. <laughs> Early Christmas came for me. <laughs> Hannah was our first listener suggestion, and we finally rolled around to a time of year that makes sense to do it. Woo! Yeah, and um, I actually, I don't think I'd ever heard the symphon- uh, Symphony Fantastique. Um, so I actually listened to it like while I was doing my notes, which was... Actually, a lot of fun. So. Oh, cool. It's fun. very good. Yeah. So I highly recommend it. Is any of it public domain? Maybe we'll throw something in. Is this guy I mean, alive? He, he, no, he, he was not. He was born in 1803. That's more than 70 years. His work is probably public domain. Well, it would depend on who performed it mm-hmm. and performances. So anyways, let's get to the topic. <laughs> yes, please. If you hear music in this episode, we found out it's free. If you don't. <laughs> It costs money. Yep. (laughs) All right. Luis Hector Berlioz was born on December 11th, 1803, which is our event, to Luis Berlioz, a physician, and his wife, Marie Antoinette Josephine, in the commune of La Côte-Saint-André in the southeast of France. He was the oldest of six children, but only two of said siblings actually survived infancy, which Mm -hmm. pretty common for the era. Typical for the age. Um, And so he remained close to both of his sisters throughout their entire lives. So Berlioz's father was a progressively minded doctor credited as the first European to practice and write about acupuncture. So oh, that's, that's cool. interesting. Um, his father was agnostic, while his mother was a strict Roman Catholic, which is a uh, very interesting route to go. So that probably created some tension. Yeah, especially <laughs> if she was strict. Yeah. After briefly attending a local school when he was around 10, Berlioz was educated at home by his father. Surprisingly, music didn't feature strongly in the future composer's education, like, at all. Okay. Um, He focused on philosophy, rhetoric, and because his father planned a medical career for him, anatomy. Didn't all fathers plan medical careers for people at that time? I'm pretty sure, yeah. You're gonna be a doctor. It was either a doctor or, like, a lawyer were like kind of the options, which are kind of the same now. <laughs> I, I understand lawyer, but back then, doctor? Yeah. There wasn't much medicine going around back yeah, then. Yeah, and like doctors weren't super well regarded either. Anyway, his father gave him basic instruction on the flagellot, think a fancy recorder. And then he later took flute and guitar lessons with local teachers. He never studied the piano, and throughout his life, he played haltingly at best, uh, which he later claimed was actually an advantage because he didn't rely on the keyboard when he was composing. That's That's kind of an interesting point, because I think a lot of people, even today, compose on keyboards, regardless Mm -hmm. of what the instrument type is. Yeah, so at the age of 12, Berlioz fell in love for the first time with his 18-year-old neighbor, Estelle Deboeuf, who presumably didn't return his affection. (laughs) 
Predictably, he was teased by his peers for his boyhood crush, but something of his early passion for Estelle endured all his life, pouring his unrequited feelings into his early attempts at composition. He wrote several chamber works as a youth, subsequently destroying the manuscripts, but he actually reused some of the themes in his later works, so they like sort of made a comeback. So in 1821, Berlioz passed the baccalaureate examination at the University of Grenoble and moved to Paris. At his father's insistence, he enrolled at the School of Medicine at the University of Paris. And fun fact, Berlioz was absolutely freaked out by dissecting dead bodies, which like fair. Yeah, I think most people would be. <laughs> but he still continued his study of medicine, possibly persuaded by his generous allowance from his father that enabled him to take full advantage of all the cultural and particularly musical life of Paris which boasted two major opera houses and the country's most important music library. That's cool. Yeah, I'm like, can I go? <laughs> I wonder what a music library looked like back in the 1800s. Probably a lot of like manuscripts of like scores and stuff would be my ah, guess. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, Berlioz attended the opera frequently, and he quickly became inspired. He began to visit the Paris Conservatoire Library in between his medical studies, seeking out scores of various operas, and he was a particular fan of Christopher Willibald Gluck. What a name. Yeah, wow. And he, he made copies of the scores that he sought out. Mind you, no scanner. So he was literally, like, hand rewriting all of these scores. Uh -huh. I could not imagine recreating that by hand. So by the end of 1822, he felt that his attempts to learn composition needed formal tutoring, and he approached Jean-Francois Lesseur, who was director of the Royal Chapel and professor at the Conservatoire. And he accepted Berlioz as a private pupil. So while still in medical school, Berlioz managed to produce several works, but they've all since been lost. Oops. Or he burned them, like his earlier ones, one or the other. <laughs> all of his unrequited love songs. Yes. <laughs> so Berlioz graduated from medical school in 1824, and having apparently not overcome his fear of dissection, promptly gave up on medicine. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> So this obviously did not win the approval of his parents, and his father suggested law as an alternative. There it is. Mm -hmm. But definitely wasn't going to accept composing music as an acceptable career path. What? Mm. He reduced and sometimes even withheld his son's allowance, creating frequent spots of financial difficult for Berlioz, who was trying to you know live in the big city. Thankfully, though, he threw himself wholeheartedly into his passion and composed a mess solemn that year, and it was performed only twice, oops, before Berlioz completely suppressed the score. Yeah. Um, and it was thought to be lost until a copy was actually discovered in 1991. Wow, quite, yeah. a, quite a gap right there. <laughs> So during 1925 and 1926, he wrote his first opera, Le Franc Juge, which was not performed and survives only in little tiny fragments. <laughs> this guy has a lot of not performed in little tiny fragments and burnt and... I mean, yeah, don't judge. <laughs> <laughs> in artist's early days are not mm -hmm. pretty. So never fear, though. He reused many parts of the score, such as The March of the Guards, which he incorporated four years later into his Symphonie Fantastique. In that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And it became um, the March of the uh, Scaffold instead of Guards. But okay. Close enough. 
Um, in August 1826, Berlioz was admitted as a student to the Conservatoire, where he continued to study composition under Lesseur and began studying counterpoint and fugue with Anton Reicha, who, interestingly, was a lifelong friend of Beethoven. Oh. So small world. Yeah. Well, the world was a lot smaller then. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. A few billion people less. <laughs> so that year, he made his first of four attempts to win France's premier music prize, the Prix de Rome, but was eliminated in the first round. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. So the following year, to earn some money, he joined the chorus at the Théâtre de Nouveauté. He competed again for the Prix de Rome, submitting the first of his Prix Cantata, La Morte d'Orphée, in July, which, again, didn't win. <laughs> Berlioz even developed a love of Shakespeare after seeing Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, even though he barely spoke any English. It's also at this point that Berlioz would meet the person who would become his muse, Harriet Smithson. And she was the touring company's leading lady. So she played like the main female roles like Juliet and Ophelia in like oh, Hamlet okay. and stuff. Yep. Yeah. So she was like the star. So Berlioz, overcome with obsession, pursued Smithson without success for many years, sending her letters and even briefly living in an apartment where he could see her return home oh, and no. watch her until she went to sleep. Oh, no. She refused to ever meet him. There was someone at my work who uh, bought an apartment next to someone that she was uh, sleeping with at work who was married. Same level of crazy. Oh, dear. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I don't blame her for uh, not wanting to meet him. <laughs> that feels a little stalkery. <laughs> yeah, that didn't sound good. Nope. Also, I know Hannah was like, it's very interesting. And it is very interesting. But man, throw this guy a bone. He is uh, not succeeding very frequently. With anything, it seems. No, yeah. in yeah. love, in music, in career, <laughs> like everything's going wrong for this guy. <laughs> So Harriet Smithson and her portrayal of female characters was actually a revolution of its own. Until her fame, tragedy was considered to be primarily a man's realm, and her distinctly genuine, almost grotesque interpretation of characters made way for subsequent actresses in tragedies. Grotesque is an odd way to describe that, but I can see why. Yeah, so her excellent acting kind of muddled the perception of her personality with that of her characters. Of course it did, because at this time, <laughs> if a woman did anything right, they were a witch, so. Yeah, well, 1800s, not 1600s, my Same. dear. Same. <laughs> it, it can still be said about today. <laughs> at the height of her career, she was the figurehead for the French Romantic movement. So that's cool. That is cool. Yeah. So the first concert of Berlioz's music took place in May of 1828, when his friend, Nathan Bloch, conducted the premiere of his overture, Le Franc Juge, was anything about this one tossed, burned, scrapped, shredded? Um, Did people attend? Well. Ah, okay. <laughs> he didn't throw away the work, but he lost a considerable amount of money on the cost of the concert hall because basically no one attended. Starving artist. Yeah. But he was greatly encouraged by the praise and approval of his performers and the applause from the musicians who were in the audience, which included a lot of his conservatoire professors, the directors of the opera and the opera comique, and the composers Daniel Francois Espirit Aubert and Louis Joseph Ferdinand Harold. Okay, so he had like some professional critics in the audience who <laughs> right. enjoyed what happened. So right. I guess that offsets the public not showing up. <laughs> it was just like public indifference, but like critical acclaim. <laughs> 
wild. Yeah. So as my fellow Francophiles may know, 1830 brought about the July Revolution, also known as the Second French Revolution, and Berlioz found himself smack dab in the middle of it. In his memoir, he said, quote, I was finishing my cantata when the revolution broke out. I dashed off the final pages of my orchestral score to the sound of stray bullets coming over the roofs and pattering on the wall outside of my window. On the 29th, I had finished and was free to go out and roam about Paris till morning, pistol in hand. Ah, good. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to describe bullets as pattering on my window. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the description of bullets should be a little bit more aggressive than that. Rap tapping at my balcony (laughs) were the bullets... Oh, no. Well, (laughs) luckily for Berlioz, though, the revolution didn't put too much of a damper on his composing, and his cantata Le Mort de Sandepal won the Prix de Rome that year. Nice! He did something! He did it! He did it! I know, shockingly. I'm so excited for this man. We're 17 minutes in, and he's got one victory. Oh, don't hold your breath. (laughs) That's not true. I mean, he is a famous composer, so, like, he does eventually succeed. Like, you just have to remember that. No, this is the underdog story. (laughs) We're just rooting for him. It doesn't start great. The July Revolution actually marked the start of several good things for Berlioz. He won the Prix de Rome, he got engaged, and he completed what would become one of his most important symphonies. Berlioz fell in love with a 19-year-old Belgian pianist, Marie Camille Moke, like she went by the name Camille. How old was he at this point? 1803 to 1890. No, 1830. Oh, I'm like, 1890. <laughs> 1803 to 1830. So he's 27, 27 right? 27, yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. 27, so... she's 19. Yeah, okay, yeah. good, good, good. Okay. That is a reasonable... Just wondering if somehow we were still in the 12-year-old range, because I missed that last time. No. (laughs) This time, his feelings were not one-sided. So the couple became engaged and began planning a wedding. In the meantime, Berlioz had been working on his Symphonie Fantastique, having been deeply inspired by Harriet Smithson and his obsession with her, or rather, he'd really fallen in love with what was called a dramatic image of a woman lent force by supreme art of Shakespeare in intensity, by a highly charged occasion and performance. So basically, he fell in love with the character she was portraying. All right. So the Symphonie Fantastique premiered on December 5th, 1830 at the Paris Conservatoire. The applause continued long after the performance ended and the press reviews expressed both the shock and the pleasure the work had given. This piece would become a landmark not only in Berlioz's career, but in the evolution of the modern orchestra. The Symphonie Fantastique is considered the first great romantic symphony and an important piece of the early romantic period. That's cool. Yeah. 27, he like made his mark, essentially. 27 is normally when musicians die, so. I haven't done anything and I'm almost 30, so there's that. So, the Symphonie Fantastique. It tells the story of an artist gifted with a lively imagination who has been who has poisoned himself with opium in the depths of despair because of hopeless, unrequited love. Sound familiar? Yes, that sounds <laughs> a lot like a certain play that he seemed to frequent a lot. Uh-huh. So, the symphony has five movements as opposed to the conventional four of the time, so already he's just breaking the mold. And interestingly, each movement is in a different key, except for the first and the last, which are both in C minor and C major. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I, I, I like that. Like, I like thinking, Not I'm not very musically inclined, but we were talking the other day about the, like, Dan Harmon's story circle and, like, yeah. narrative focus and how you break things up. And uh, a lot of Eastern culture does, I think it's a three-act structure where... Uh, the Western culture does four or five act structures mm-hmm. typically. Yeah. So it's always very interesting to think about how people compose stories and what structures they use to influence it. Yeah, absolutely. So the first movement called Reverie 
or pat and passions has the author imagining a young musician affected by the sickness of spirit which Francois René de Chateaubriand called the vagueness or confusion of passions the musician sees for the first time a woman who unites all the charms of the ideal person his imagination had been dreaming of and falls desperately in love with her Again, didn't actually meet her. Just saying. <laughs> um, however, in the musician's mind, the image of this woman is always associated with a musical idea in which he recognizes a certain quality of passion, but endowed with the nobility and shyness that he credits to the object of his love. The, this movement is called the ID fix. So, like, fixed idea. Oh, okay. Yeah. Can't uh, just say French things at me and expect me to understand. I like doing it, though. <laughs> so these images haunt him, which explains the constant recurrence in all the movements of this symphony of the melody, which launches the first allegro. And for those non-musical people, an allegro is a tempo mark for fast, quick, and bright. And it usually is between 120 and 156 beats per minute. The transitions from the state of dreamy melancholy interrupted by occasional upsurges of aimless joy to delirious passion with its outbursts of fury and jealousy its returns to, of tenderness, its tears, its religious consolations, all of these things form the subject of the first movement. Um, this first movement was considered pretty radical in its harmonic outline, where it basically builds a large arch across the staff to return to where it started, which really only differs slightly from the conventional sonata of the time, but it was still enough to be radical. So throughout this movement, Berlioz rejected writing the more symmetrical melodies that are more academic in fashion, and instead looked for melodies that were so intense in every note as to define normal harmonization, which then created a very unique feel for the opening of his symphony. So the second movement was called Un Ball, a ball, like a dance, a ball. Um, and it has the musician finding himself in the most diverse situations in his life, in the tumult of a festive party, in the peaceful contemplation of the beautiful sights of nature, yet everywhere, whether in the town or the countryside, this beloved image keeps haunting him and throws his spirit into confusion. This movement begins with a mysterious introduction creating an atmosphere of impending excitement, followed by a passage dominated by two harps. Then the following waltz theme appears, derived from the fixed idea um, of his beloved at first, and then it transforms. This movement is the only one to feature the two harps that actually ended up being a bit of a struggle because when he was in Germany, he had a really, really hard time finding two harps and harpists who were like good enough. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but the harp provides kind of like the glamour and sensual richness of the ball, which is why it's so important. Yep. The third movement called the scene au champ or the scene in the fields has the musician overhearing two shepherds in the distance dialogue Dialoguing with their Rons de Vache, which is a traditional Swiss alpine herding melody played on horns. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So this pet pastoral duet, with its setting, the gentle rustling of the trees and the wind, some causes for hope that he had recently conceived, all conspire to restore to his heart an unaccustomed feeling of calm and to give to his thoughts a happier coloring. So this is like the calm before the storm, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> the musician broods on his loneliness and hopes that soon he will no longer be all on his own. But what if she betrays him? This mingled hope and fear, the ideas of happiness disturbed by dark premonitions, form the subject of the adagio, which again, for those who are not music musical people means that it's slow with great expression so at the end one of the shepherds resumes his melody on his horn and the other one no longer answers interesting then, yeah then the distant sound of thunder solitude and silence 
The two shepherds are represented by one English horn and an offstage oboe going back and forth with each other okay. to try and give like an evocative melody that also like plays on like the way you hear things. So like it's offstage, so it sounds They were doing far, stereo like... before oh, stereo yeah. was a yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then when the principal theme begins, it's a flute solo accompanied by violins. And then, of course, our fixed idea comes back in the middle of the movement and it's played by an oboe and a flute. So the fourth movement called the March au Supplice, or the March to the Scaffold, which I mentioned before, yeah. brings back one of his old ripped up things. This one has a musician thinking that his beloved has spurned him, doses himself with opium, and plunges into a heavy sleep accompanied by some real strange visions. He dreams that he has killed his beloved and that he is condemned, led to the scaffold, and is witnessing his own execution. That's a bad trip. Yeah, that's not great. The procession advances to the sound of a march that sometimes somber and wild, and sometimes brilliant and solemn, in which a dull sound of heavy footsteps follows the loud outbursts. Before the musical depiction of his execution, there's a brief nostalgic recollection of the fixed idea in a solo clarinet as though representing the final thought of love of the soon-to-be-executed man, which is then interrupted by the fatal blow. Oh. Woohoo! <laughs> and finally, the fifth movement, called the Song du Nuit de Sabbath, the dream of a witch's Sabbath, um, has the musician finding himself at a witch's Sabbath in the midst of a hideous gathering of shades, sorcerers, and monsters of every kind who have all come together for his own funeral. So that's not terrifying or anything. No, not at all. <laughs> it was a mash. Oh, yeah, it was a monster match. The introduction is largo, which means like slow and broad, so very like elongated. And it creates an ominous quality through the copious use of diminished seventh chords, which if you're a musician, you'll appreciate, um, as well as dynamic variations to all of the above and instrumental effects, particularly when it comes to like the stringed instruments. Okay. So like a lot of plucking and like other weird things that you can do with them. There are strange sounds, groans, outbursts of laughter and distant shouts, which are all portrayed by musical instruments, which is wild to me. Well, that kind of reminds me of early Disney stuff where, yes. like, before they had any sort of speaking roles. Yes. Um, so the beloved melody appears once more, depicted by the B-flat clarinet, but now it's lost its noble and shy character and is a little bit more of a vulgar dance tune. Oh. It is his beloved who is coming to this Sabbath celebration, and uh, roars of delight are heard upon her arrival, again with this fixed idea melody coming back, this time with a prominent E-flat clarinet solo, which is like a little bit more strident almost, so it's like a progression. And his beloved joins in the diabolical orgy. And yes, that is what Berlioz actually called it in his program. I love it. What, uh -huh. a, what a good name. Uh -huh. So the witches dance and then the funeral knell tolls, introducing the Dias Irae, which picks up speed, transforming into a burlesque parody of the Dias Irae combined with the witches dance. And many Catholics will recognize the Dias Irae as it's used in the Roman Rite Requiem which is also known as the Mass for the Dead or the Funeral Mass. Mm -hmm. Do you do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, the do 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 do. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it. It's funny because the first few notes of that sound like making Christmas. Yeah, I know. We were singing that earlier, and I was just like, oh. <laughs> um, so, fun fact: the DS Airy is also frequently used and modified in all sorts of music, including. Brahms six pieces for piano, opus number 118, holy cow, number six, in 1893. Gerald Fried's 
opening theme for The Return of Dracula in 1958, Stephen Sondheim, Sweeney Todd in The Ballad of Sweeney Todd, Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind in the opening theme for The Shining in 1980, Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz in The Hunchback of Notre Dame in the song The Bells of Notre Dame, which even includes passages from the um, first and second stanza as lyrics. And then last but not least, my favorite, Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez utilized the Deus Irie in the Frozen 2 song, Into the Unknown. Uh, Don't you dare. (laughs) That's also the same pattern that they use for the song in Squid Game. Yeah, yeah. It's prolific. Yeah. Like that particular theme, because it's quite recognizable as like a very somber kind of like intended for the dead kind of song. Interesting. It's, It's interesting how much that has carried through history. Uh in a lot of different ways. Oh, yeah. It's interesting to look at history through music, and I feel like this is that's something that I want to do more on on this podcast because I haven't looked at music, like, at all. Yeah. I think I looked at Silent Night, and that was it. (laughs) That was last Christmas, too. It was. Yeah. So now that I've fully nerded out over the Symphonie Fantastique, Let's hear about the rest of Berlioz's life. And it just keeps getting good, right? He just keeps doing better? I mean, he does He does good. Oh, awesome. For the most part. Good. We Our underdog has made it. Mm-hmm. So shortly after the triumphant debut of the Symphonie Fantastique, Berlioz headed off to Italy. The terms of the Prix de Rome stipulated that winners studied for two years at the Villa Medici, which was part of the French Academy in Rome. But... After three weeks, Berlioz went AWOL. He had found out that Marie had called off their engagement and was to marry an older and richer suitor, Camille Playel, the heir to the Playel Piano Manufacturing Company. Mmm, found a sugar daddy. And I mean, like, she's a pianist. His family makes and sells pianos. Uh-huh. Like, it does kind of seem like a match made in heaven a little bit. <laughs> I like how I said, does stuff get better for him? And you said, yeah, pretty much. And then immediately I start with getting abandoned. May by have his... forgotten that this occurred now. <laughs> oh. Anyway, apparently given to drama and poorly thought through plans. Really? Ber- really? Yep. Uh, Berlioz had created an elaborate plan to kill them both. Oh. Yep. Oh. Yep. He acquired poisons, pistols, and a disguise for this purpose. Thankfully, in the time that it took for him to actually get to Nice, he had thought better of this plan, abandoned the idea of revenge, and successfully sought permission to return to the Villa Medici. I just picture him just like standing just right in front of his door about to open it, and then like camera pans around, and he's just like full Phantom of the Opera suit with like a dagger just like in his hand or something like that. I would love to see that depicted. That's hysterical. So he stayed in Nice for a couple of weeks and wrote his King Lear overture, and then on his way back to Italy, he began work on a piece for narrator, solo voices, chorus, and orchestra called Le Rit- Tour à la vie, or The Return to Life, which was to be a sequel to the Symphonie Fantastique. So now Berlioz did not enjoy Rome, um, and he wrote that it was, quote, the most stupid and prosiatic city I know. It is no place for anyone with head or heart. Oh. So he did not like Rome. Yeah, harsh criticism. Also, he, I mean, he had just gotten dumped, so like that could have colored his experience I mean, this guy seems pretty emo for 1800 standards. Oh, absolutely. Yes. 
Yes, yes, yes. So Rome actually did Berlioz some good, though, as his compositions took on a more vivacious nature, which his biographer attributed to the sun and scenery. So upon his return to Paris in December 1832, Berlioz presented a concert of his works at the Conservatoire. The program included the overture to Le Franc Juge, the Symphonie Fantastique, extensively revised since its premiere, and Le Retour de la Vie, in which a popular actor actually declaimed some of the monologues, so he was actually able to hire someone who was fairly popular to to be part of this, which is pretty cool. Yeah, neat. So now Berlioz took this opportunity to try and meet his former muse. He sent an invitation to Harriet through a third party, which she actually accepted, and then was thoroughly impressed by the celebrities who were in the audience. Nice. Go figure. By this point, Harriet's career was in decline, having had a very bad season, first at the Teatro Italien and then at lesser venues, and had accumulated quite a bit of debt. This may have factored into her decision to accept Berlioz's renewed proposal, despite the wishes of both of their families. Oh. Yep. They married at the British Embassy in Paris on October 3rd, 1833, and had one child together. Louis Clement Thomas in 1834. The first few years of the marriage were happy, although it did eventually flounder. Harriet continued to yearn for a career, but as her biographer, Peter Rabbi, comments, she never learned to speak French fluently, which seriously limited both her professional and social life, living in Paris. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Communication is kind yeah. of a key to being happy. Yep. So Berlioz continued to receive earnings as a laureate of the Prix de Rome that wouldn't last forever, so he began supplementing his earnings from composing, which were unreliable at best, by writing music criticism for the Parisian press. So during this time, Berlioz completed several works, including his Requiem, or Grande Messe de Mort, and his opera Bienvenuto Cellini, which was extremely technically difficult, and the performers were not happy about it, and they weren't <laughs> good enough either. So it had a worse reception than Berlioz would have liked or thought it deserved, but that's what happens when you do something, you make something that's too hard to be done. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so he even said that the failure of the piece meant that the doors of the opera were closed to him for the rest of his career, which essentially they were because he didn't go back to writing opera, except for a single commission to arrange a Weber score in 1841. <laughs> So this failure at opera composition did, however, lead Berlioz to even greater success as composer-conductor of a concert of Harold in Italy, which is just the name of the thing, Harold in Italy. Niccolo Paganini, the most celebrated violin virtuoso of the time, even came up to the platform at the end of this concert and knelt in homage to Berlioz and kissed his hand. Wow. So things are looking up a little bit. They're okay. Yeah. And much to Berlioz's surprise, a couple days later, he received a check from Paganini for 20,000 francs. Wow. 20,000 sounds like it's probably a lot at this point. I mean, yes. This fully enabled him to pay off his and Harriet's debts, which, remind you, she had a lot of. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, even, he also gave up music criticism for the time being and concentrated on composition, which he had kind of been, like, throwing to the side a little so bit. So this was a lot of money. Oh, yeah. It was, like, life-changing, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote the dramatic symphony Romeo et Juliette for voices, chorus, and orchestra, and it premiered in November 1839 and was so well-received that Berlioz and his huge instrumental and vocal forces gave two further performances in rapid succession. So, like, 
where previous things had essentially done so poorly that he pulled the next performances, this single performance ended up giving multiple more performances because it was so good. That's cool. Yeah. So by the early 1840s, Berlioz had become a bit of a celebrity, having been appointed as the deputy librarian of the conservatoire, which is the job that I desperately want. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) And he completed an extensive tour of Germany where the public was better disposed than the French to his innovative compositions, and his conducting was seen as highly impressive. However, while his career was doing amazing, his marriage to Harriet was not. She resented his celebrity and her own eclipse, and she grew suspicious and jealous as Berlioz grew close to singer Marie Ryko, and then Harriet's health deteriorated, and she began drinking heavily, which is... Never a good sign. Yeah, not a good combo no, either. No, So her suspicion about Ryko was actually well-founded as the later became Berlioz's mistress in 1841. Wow, wow. And accompanied him on his German tour, which he did not take Harriet on. Huh. So, hmm. That's not a great, yeah, not great thing to do. Nope. Um, Berlioz returned to Paris in mid-1843, Marie in tow. During the following year, he wrote two of his most popular short works, The Overture, The Overture, Le Carnaval Roman, which reused music from the Bienvenuto Cellini, and Le Corsair. Hey, we saw that. Nope, we didn't. No? (laughs) No. (laughs) Le Corsair, like, the ballet that we saw is different from this orchestral piece. Uh... I know, I even have it in my notes. I literally said, no, it's not the valley that we saw. <laughs> oh, I fell right into the trap. I know. I'm You did sorry. this on purpose. Yeah, a little bit. So towards the end of the year, he and Harriet separated. Berlioz maintained two households, and Harriet remained in Montmartre, and he moved in with Ryko at her flat in central Paris. Berlioz continued his international tours to great acclaim, but soon after his return to Paris in mid-September of 1848, Harriet suffered a s- series of strokes, which left her almost paralyzed, and mentioned that she needed constant care, um, which Berlioz was more than willing to pay for, and he actually visited her almost every day while he was in Paris. Okay. So, like, they're still close, just... I feel like it's, like, unable to live together kind of thing. Yeah. Right? So, unfortunately, in 1854, Harriet died. And during the year, Berliet... <laughs> Berliet, I just combine their names. That's normal. They're, you know, they have some level of celebrity. Yeah, it's yeah, their yeah, celebrity. It's celebrity It's a couple name. name. Berliet. No. Berlioz completed the composition for L'Enfance du Christ, which received a warm reception. He worked on his book of memoirs and married Marie Ryko, which he later explained to his son he felt it was his duty to do that after he had lived with her for so long, like out of wedlock Uh in the 1840s. Yeah. So in 1858, he was elected to the Institut de France, an honor that he had long sought, but he kind of like tried to play it down to like as a cool kid kind of thing, Uh tried not to make a big deal out of it. But in June of 1862, Marie died suddenly at age 48. She was survived by her mother, who Berlioz was actually like quite devoted to. She continued to take care of Berlioz for the rest of his life. Her mother took care of Berlioz for the rest of his life. (laughs) Interesting. I know, yeah. What a twisted web we weave. Anyway, (laughs) and unfortunately, Fortunately for Berlioz, her death actually coincided with the failure of one of his most ambitious works, Le Troyen, a five-act, five-hour opera based on Virgil's epic. That's a long time. Yeah. So the production was actually on such a large scale that it there was, like, no way to stage it. So the management of the opera and um, were basically, like, 
no. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Berlioz tried to stage it himself, but that failed. So the only way that he could find of seeing this work produced was to divide it into two parts. So it became the fall of Troy and then the Trojans at Carthage. The later, consisting of the final three acts of the original, was presented at the Théâtre Lyrique in Paris in November 1863. But even that truncated version was further truncated. And like during the 22 performances of this run, number after number just kept getting cut. Yep. So, like, it wasn't great, and the experience demoralized Berlioz, and he stopped writing music altogether. Oh, that's kind of sad. Yeah. So, he was, however, able to sell the publishing rights to Le Troyenne for a large sum, which made his last years financially comfortable. He was able to give up his work as a critic, but he soon lapsed into a depression. So, like, clearly, giving up work as a critic and giving up music were, like, not a great combo. Yeah, I mean, he gave up all of his passions. Yeah, exactly. He had not only lost both of his wives, but he had also lost both of his sisters at this point, and had become morbidly aware of death as many of his friends and other contemporaries had also died. And and he's not that old, right? It's 18, he's in his 60s. Oh, okay. And, like, for the time, like, that's fairly, that's, pretty that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with all of this loss in their lives, Berlioz and his son had actually grown quite close. But Luis was a captain in the Merchant Navy and was more often than not away from home, which I'm guessing probably didn't help Berlioz's mental health at this point either. Uh-huh. Additionally, Berlioz's physical health wasn't doing great either, and he was often in pain from an intestinal complaint, possibly Crohn's disease. Like, that's what people think it probably was. It was during this time that Berlioz reconnected with his first love, Estelle, now a widow at 67. He called on her in September of 1864. She received him kindly, and he visited her in three successive summers, and he wrote to her nearly every month for the rest of his life. So in 1867, Berlioz received the news that his son had died in Havana of yellow fever, and possibly hoping to distract himself from... This additional loss of literally his entire family, Berlioz decided to go ahead with a planned series of concerts in St. Petersburg and Moscow, but far from having a rejuvenating effect, the trip completely sapped him of pretty much his remaining strength. Yep. The tour went well, and he received a warm response from the new generation of Russian composers and the general public, but he returned to Paris visibly unwell. He went to Nice to recuperate in the Mediterranean climate, but he actually fell on some rocks by the shore, and they think it was probably because of a stroke. So he had to return to Paris, where he convalesced for several months. And then after arriving back in Paris from judging a choral festival in Grenoble, he gradually grew weaker and died at his house in the Rue de Calais on March 8th, 1869, at the age of 65. He was buried in Montmartre Cemetery with his two wives, who were exhumed and then reburied next to him. Oh. Which is actually really cute. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the life and times of Louis Hector Berlioz. Very cool. There uh, were ups and downs. Uh, lots of downs. <laughs> some some big spikes up. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, he left a big mark on the, the period and like future music. So yeah. like, it's hard to, as someone who is not inherently a musician, it's hard to get at how influential the Symphony Fantastique was. Right. Like it was a big deal. That's cool. Yeah. On a uh, unrelated, related note, <laughs> is Francophile really what they call people who study France or did you just put that in? Francophile? Yeah. Yes. That is people who really like France. France and French culture. Because when you said it, oh, my immediate thought was someone who just loves hot dogs. <laughs> I'm like, do they really use... Fr- I know that the French are the Franks, but still. No. <laughs> no, no, I, 
Oh, it took everything oh, not, not to blurt that out slash laugh right in, right when you said it earlier. You're the worst. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no. On to our call to action. Woo. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfway to History. You can go to our website at halfwitpodcast.com I don't remember if we mentioned this on the episode with Matt Spaziani I forget but we do have halfwitpodcast.com where you can find all of the stuff that Kylie and I work on. Yeah so that's a very convenient landing site to explore. Yeah and you can throw us some some change if you got it for these holidays alms for the poor all that jazz (laughs) Uh, please sir can I have some more? (laughs) Uh, at ko-fi.com forward slash halfwit history. And right now it's just like a tip jar. I don't yeah. think I've done any sort of updates to it mm-hmm. where Kylie and I are trying to think of some things that we could do is like more supporter content kind yeah. of a deal. But right now it's just a tip jar. Yeah. And I mean, if anyone has any suggestions, things that they would enjoy us to do as bonus content, send it our way. Yeah. And thank you to The Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Now, is it fun fact time? I think it's fun fact time. woo You go first, because I talked a lot. Well, I'm going to do this one. <laughs> Ky- Kylie wrote the fun facts this time. Mm-hmm. And one of these sentences really caught me off, off guard, and I didn't know anything about So on December 7th of 1912, George Darwin, son of Charles Darwin, theorized that the moon was pulled from the Pacific Ocean. Yeah! (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) The apple fell so far from the tree. (laughs) Wow. So that's my fun fact. Oh, I screwed that up a little bit. December 7th of 1912 is when George Darwin dies. He is known for theorizing that the moon was pulled out of the Pacific Ocean. Ah, yes, yes. I was going to say, I just remember the part about the moon. What's your fun fact, Kylie? Ooh, all right. She says, ooh, even though she's the one who put these on. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We just talked about that. Okay. So, on December 9th of 1980, it is 61 degrees in Boston at 1 (laughs) a.m. Okay. It was hot for December. Yeah, I guess. I can pick a different one. Sure, do another one. <laughs> All right. Now for the weather. For some reason, <laughs> hey now, <laughs> for some reason, this particular week did not have great fun facts. Yep. So it was a little bit of a struggle. All right. As told by Kylie going to the weather for a fun fact. <laughs> I need to hit my dream of being a weather girl. I'm sorry. That was your dream? No, it wasn't. I was just trying to be facetious. Uh huh. All right. Take two. On December 6, 1900, Agnes Moorhead, American actress, who was known for being Andorra in Bewitched, was born in Clinton, Massachusetts. Whoa, didn't know that. Yeah, so uh, right next door. Cool. Yeah, now I want to know where. <laughs> we shall find in it. A, in a weird, creepy kind of way. I want to know where. Oh, so you're going <laughs> to lean into the fact that it is, in fact, a creepy kind of way that you want to know where. Fully, yeah. Okay. Well... That's been our show. As always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye.